Hello there, I'm Aaron Martell. And I'm Lou Figaro. And welcome to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews, a podcast where we talk about and review a rock album of our choice. This episode, we are joined by a first-time guest co-pilot and fellow podcaster. From the Slamfest podcast, Brad Rustoven is here. Brad, welcome to the R4 podcast. Hey, Aaron, Lou, how are you guys doing? Great. Yeah, pretty good. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Good to have you on. Finally. Yeah. <laughs> so on this episode, we're going to review Boston's 1986 album, Third Stage. Brad, what's your history with Boston and this particular album? So background with Boston all goes to my older brother. So he's three years older than me. And I was trying to think 1986, this album came out. I feel like, so he would be a, he would have been a junior in high school and I was in uh, eighth grade at the time. And I think he got into this album first and then went backwards to the debut. But I, I guess I don't know the the order of, of how that happened. Grew up in central Nebraska, and we actually didn't have a traditional classic rock radio station when we were growing up in middle school and high school. So I didn't get inundated <laughs> with that debut album. So it wasn't ruined for me by the time I got uh, got to high school and, and college. But again, I think think third stage came first and he went backwards. And so that's how I got introduced to Boston. All right. Lou, what's your story? Well, Boston's been in my ears since they came out. Um, I always liked everything on the first record, a little le less on the next. But when I heard mid-80s that they were coming out with a new CD, I was stoked and I bought it right away. I was excited, so I got it on CD. It was uh, I used to play it on my this portable disc player in the mid eighties, but it was more like the size of a Chromebook. Actually, it was, it was pretty <laughs> huge. And I'd plug it into a cassette adapter that, that went into a cassette player in my dash. So, you know, you, you get that real high fidelity sound from that. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, I bought it right away. I was stoked. And that's where I come in with this is release day. All right. So we covered Boston's debut album on the podcast. And as I said then, I heard Boston's hits on the radio growing up, and I liked them a lot. Who didn't? But I didn't own any Boston albums until this one came out in 86, which was my junior year of high school. And I remember it was a big deal. It had been, what, eight years since Don't Look Back. Back then, that was a fucking eternity between album releases. So around my high school, everyone was getting into this, except for maybe the Metalheads, and Amanda was on the radio everywhere, and Boston was just one of those bands that seemed to kind of cross over with music fans. They were, they were just huge. They were popular. So I want to say that by the end of 86, I got all three Boston albums at the same time on cassette, and then I just immersed myself in this band. Now I'm going to give you some basic facts about this record pulled straight from Wikipedia. Third Stage is the third studio album by American rock band Boston, released on September 26, 1986 on MCA Records. It was produced by Tom Schultz and was recorded between 1980 and 1986 at Tom Schultz's hideaway studio, Maynard, Massachusetts. It reached number one on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and is certified four times platinum by the RIAA. And here is the musician's lineup card. We've got Brad Delp on lead and harmony vocals, 
Tom Schultz on Grand Piano, Electric Piano, Hammond Organ, Theater Organ, Lead Guitar, Rhythm Guitar, Acoustic Guitar, Bass Guitar, some Drums, Guitar Violin, Rocket Ignition, Thunderstorms, and Unidentified Flying Objects. Gary Pill on Lead Guitar, Jim Mazdia on Drums, and Sib Hashian on Drums. Okay, let's get into a track-by-track analysis of this album. We start things off with Amanda, written by Tom Schultz. Brad, what do you think? Yeah, so I've got the CD. Lou, you said you bought the CD when it came out? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I, so I still have my CD. And if you recall, inside the liner notes are awesome in this thing, where I think Tom wrote like a little a blurb about each one of these. So this was the first song that he had written, you know, back in 1980 for this album, first song on the album, first written. Awesome opening track. And I'd be curious to hear what you guys say about this, because kind of out of left field, starting with a power ballad. <laughs> I mean, the song went to number one, but I think it's a great way to start the album. Acoustic guitars are great, sound great. Those chime notes in there, right? Those aren't, you know, synthesizers or whatever. Supposedly it's electric guitar stuff on there. And then that lead fill comes in with the Rockman tone, which we can talk about the Rockman a little bit uh, as we go through this. But love Delp's vocal, love the the verse melody. I think it's a great song, and it deserved to go to number one. Lou? Okay. I I was waiting for a triumphant return of Boston. You know, awesome opening tunes or what these guys are made of. More than a feeling on side one of the first one, rock and roll band on side two. Don't look back. And then on the other side was feeling satisfied. All great great album openers instead we get this watered down vaseline lens pussified prom date disco ball slow dance piece of garbage (laughs) what's worse is that for the next 36 years they shoved this over processed stereo chorus rock man by tom schultz soft polished pile of dog shit down our ears on album-oriented radio for what seemed like an eternity. I got a similar feeling a few years earlier uh, when I got all excited about Yes's Steve Howe and ELP's Carl Palmer getting together to form a supergroup, Asia, to come out. And then they came out with that soft rock garbage heat of the moment. I mean, I just, I, I give up. I give up. The other problem, besides the Prozac-leveled mediocrity that of the whole delivery, is the process to death production. I I could call the the opposite of brick walling. Uh, It sort of filled out the sonic space by blurring the instruments and vocals with this big hall chorus and reverb. It's like, it's like being in a church and I don't like church and I I don't like this song. (laughs) Big whiff, Boston. (laughs) Well, 
I'm on Team Brad with this one <laughs> instead of Team Lou. Um, like you said, Brad, it, it's been around since 1980 when Tom Schultz first demoed it with only like slight reworking before it was finally put out six years later. It starts with that foundation of layered acoustic guitars and Brad Delp's gentle vocals building slowly with those notes that sound like bells. I thought it might have been the organ, but I, I, guitar, sure, whatever. Sib Hashians, rest in peace. Easy drums that do sound, they sound really fake and shitty. The drum sound on this album blows. I will, that I can't deny. And Schultz's electric lead guitar lines kind of all lead to the big catchy chorus with the amazing soaring Delp harmonies and, of course, the famous Tom Schultz guitar layering, who the fuck knows how many guitars are on this. The lead guitar solo is basically the chorus vocal melody done up with guitar manies, and the bridge has a dramatic tension buildup with Delp's layered vocals, all bringing us back down to a final acoustic verse, half section to close out as softly as we came in. The lyrics are about a guy who was afraid his girl Amanda might leave him, so he pours his heart out to her. Our boy's ready for the full commitment, and he wants to know if Amanda's on the same page. I love this song. I always have. It's one of the best-known Boston tracks, and it was the first single from the album that reached number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart, the band's first and only number one single. So what do I know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, here, you know, these bands from the 70s, that transitioned into the eighties successfully, they had to go down this path a little bit, you know, I think with regards to the, and we'll get through the the other songs on here, but I mean, the bands that were successful in the seventies had to do stuff different and not do the same old thing that they were doing in the seventies to be successful. The next track is we're ready written by Tom Schultz. your thoughts okay why wasn't this the first tune (laughs) with a different intro this would have been a much better choice whatever they've been snorting for the last eight years it's drained any sort of swagger or soul from them Uh, the opening sounds like he's recording from his bedroom and can't turn the amp up because it pisses his father off (laughs) he's tired and just got off work oh and that that, we're ready hey (laughs) It kind of makes an eighth grade cheerleader sound more aggressive than these guys. Despite the production, this sounds like what I was expecting from Boston and and more of of down the road of what they should be doing. Brad. Yeah, so this one in the liner notes written in 81. And I, I would put this song up against any of the rockers on the first two albums. I mean, that riff, you know, during the chorus is is very reminiscent of some of that stuff on the first two albums. I think Delp's vocal, double-tracked at times, is just so, so good. You know, that intro, yeah, that little hi-hat and the little (laughs) 
muted riff at the beginning. Yeah, they could have just they just could have kicked into it right away. I, I agree with that. And but overall, this is a rocker. But you don't like that we're ready, hey part, Lou. <laughs> <laughs> It's got to be Delp, right? He did all the vocals, yep. so it's all all Delp for yep. sure. So Hashian's hi-hat 16th notes and Schultz's cleanish intro lick kicks us off. And right off the bat, we're hit with some sweet Brad Delp wordless vocal harmonies when he starts singing the first verse. That, ooh, it's, it's, that's great shit. The chorus cranks up the volume again, and that Tom Schultz guitar tone is unmistakable through his homemade Rockman amp and effects. The guitar interludes are incredibly melodic, layered, and harmonized, and Delp is a marvel with just the fucking high notes he can hit. Right, Lou? Yeah! <laughs> what a voice he had, though. He really, really was pretty amazing. Lyrically, it's like the next step from Amanda. She's committed to being with our boy, and he proclaims that with her by his side, together they can face anything life throws at them. They're ready to face the challenges come what may. So this song kind of follows the overall formula of the first track, though it's a bit harder rocking. I mean, it's the classic Boston sound. And it was the third single that reached number nine on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. And it ends with tinkling guitar notes that sound bell-like, and it segues into the following track. And that following track is The Launch, written by Tom Schultz. Yeah, so this is what broken down into three sections, right? It's like the countdown, ignition, and then third stage separation. That first part reminds me of one of my favorite movies, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Some of that eerie sound effects going on in there. And then when that organ hits, holy cow, powerful, powerful stuff with with that. And then, of course, goes into the... The last part of that, uh, the third stage separation, that lead melody, again, like you're talking about, Aaron, the the Boston sound that he's got with that lead melody, great stuff. I think this is, you know, it's different, but it's definitely comparable to foreplay. I mean, yeah. I know foreplay is four-play's different, but, you know, this is actually a theme, right? I mean, this is <laughs> sounds like a, a rocket taken off foreplay i'm not sure what foreplay sounds like but i'm not sure it sounds like that (laughs) (laughs) lou countdown the first part sort of sounds like the noodlings of a church organist like as people are filing in for a wedding or something or before mass back to your church uh, (laughs) reference right (laughs) um it's i think it is trying to recreate the foreplay vibe it's got a queen feel when the ignition crashes in, you know, the, the majestic organs, very majestic sounding. And the third stage separation just sounds like the buildup for the next song. And this better be a good one. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's an instrumental piece constructed, as Brad said, three sections. Countdown sections got Schultz noodling on a Hammond organ, like you were saying, Lou Church. And I hate church, too. 
while you hear a constant high organ part that gives you the feeling of space atmospherics, you're, you you kind of do feel like it's spacey. Then the ignition section kicks in with huge guitars and organ with big cymbal crashes and spare drum fills that sound like samples again. These fucking drums. And then a big theater organ's added to the mix. And the sound somehow grows larger and denser, and we're headed to outer space now. The guitar solo seems to flow inside the organ cacophony. Then the whole tune's taken even higher. The tension's palpable. It doesn't seem fucking possible. And just as your head's just about to snap off your neck and float away, the tension's abruptly released as we achieve the third stage separation. The guitar fades out, and a phased organ part that sounds like a rocket cruising remains to make us feel like we're continuing our journey into the cosmos. But really, this whole sci-fi space adventure shtick we've been on is basically just an extended intro into the next track. Like you said, it's kind of like this album's foreplay. And that next track is Cool the Engines, written by Tom Scholz, Fran Sheehan, and Brad Delp. about this one lou okay now we're talking this is what i want very very good drop the newfangled 80s bullshit and rock us out boston style i'll take this one all day i wonder if this is something they had uh from the don't look back days or it was something that they wrote more towards 86 it fits in with the older stuff a lot better follows that formula it works for me finally a keeper brad yeah, awesome song. And again, according to the liner notes, it was written in 81, 82 time frame. But yeah, I mean, during the chorus, that guitar, that underlying guitar <laughs> riffing is is 70s Boston all the way. Delp sounds great. God, during those verses, he is really going for it. I mean, that, you know, that'd be a hard song to sing live, uh, the register he was in kind of during that uh, those verses. But awesome song, some engine sound effects but again you know i don't think they used anything that's got to be a guitar got to be one of uh one of schultz's guitars making that sound according to the liner notes great song though written and recorded in 1981 and 82 this is the hardest rocking song we've heard so far the riffs are thick and heavy the rhythms are varied by section with drum tracks that were cut up and arranged by schultz bar by bar and the bass playing has some nice movement underneath, while the vocals stay up in the higher registers, like you were saying, Brad. Jesus. I dig the churning riff buildup that keeps the energy level high and takes us to the solo, which is short, has a more frenetic feel, and is less melodic. To me, the lyrics are about slowing down, not rushing through life, taking things easy so you don't burn yourself out with the stress. Through the metaphor of cooling down the engines of a rocket, I also read that it could be about any situation that becomes tense and needs relief before things go too far and become destructive, like the threat of nuclear conflict, which in 86, we were all scared of that shit. After the solo, the music drops out and we do cool down. And even though the music does build back up, it stays at more of an even keel for the outro with those incredible delp harmonies. 
This is one of my favorite tracks on the album, and it was the second single that reached number four on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Tracks chart. The following track is My Destination, written by Tom Schultz. Brad, what is this? Well, so it's two minutes and 19 seconds of a rehash of the opening track, basically, right? The Amanda verse melody, but then it goes into and takes a left turn at the Amanda chorus and he sings My Destination. But, you know, it kicks in a little bit. Again, that lead melody comes in. So it's kind of there's a theme, right, going going through this album. It's not a you know, formally a concept album, but it's got kind of a, a very similar guitar lead melody theme throughout it. So I don't know. I mean, they needed something to end the first side, I guess. There you go. <laughs> Lou. This is a rehash of Amanda, which is a rehash of someone saved my life tonight. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have the luxury of Bernie Taupin writing those lyrics. I guess Defender Rhodes is why the intro actually sounds like Super Tramp, too, it reminds me of. Until he opens his mouth and it loses all credibility and sounds more like a frustrated middle school music teacher trying to do his own song when all the parents want to hear this kids, their own kids, barely. Another wedding dance song. These guys in Farner, man. What were they adding to the cocaine in the 80s that turned decent rock bands from the 70s into douchey wedding and prom balladeers? If Mass and Gill had a sound, this would be it. <laughs> oh. Next. Well, this is built on an electric piano part that kind of lopes along. And then, like we said, Delp sings the exact melody we heard in Amanda. This kind of feels like a continuation of that track. Or more precisely, it feels like the coda of side one. Like all the songs fit together in a kind of sort of sweet. You kind of alluded to that, Brad. From here on out for the rest of the album, it's original Boston drummer Jim Masdy on the terrible-sounding drums, and we get a nice melodic guitar solo beefed up with organ and a counter-melody on bass, and it's all brought back down for Delp to finish singing with the electric piano. The lyrics are about the narrator finding that his destination through the journey of life is being beside his partner, and that it's less about the destination than the journey itself, finding that peace from within. Like you said, it's short, only two minutes and 19 seconds, and ties everything together and wraps up side one with a nice little bow. Ah. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on A New World, written by Jim Mazdia. drummer wrote this one i didn't even realize that this was a separate track it it blended together with the next track and 
I figured this was an intro for it. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Brad. So, yeah, starting off side two with a 38-second instrumental, which those liner notes say, no, those aren't violins. They're electric guitars through a Rockman. But then it says that it was written in 82 and 85. Okay, 38 seconds. <laughs> why, <laughs> why are we waiting three years to finish this uh, Finish this piece? So, again, just just have this be the intro to whatever the next song you know is and not have it be a separate track. That's my only complaint. Well, it's a bombastic 37 seconds with the big guitars, cymbal splashes, and brief melodic leads finishing up with a big organ stab. I'm with you guys. Did this need to be a separate track? Maybe because the drummer gets sole writing credit for it? I don't know. It sounds cool, I guess. The next track is To Be a Man, written by Tom Schultz. To be a man What does it take to see It's a heart and soul A gentle hand so easy to want and so hard to give how can you be a man till you see beyond the life you live oh what does it take to be a man brad what do you think yeah, so piano organ intro. So sounds like the intro from Love on the Rocks from Neil Diamond, which I'm a fan of Neil Diamond actually. So, but it totally sounds like I mean that the whole vibe is is from that. So, you know, beautiful verse. I I'm just I don't know. That I'm not not a huge fan of the song. I mean, it, it it it's a beautiful song. You know, there's some there's some good lyrics in there, that type of stuff, but just not Probably my least favorite song on the album. Lou. Big intro, big drums, big reverb, big churchy organs. Then he opens his mouth. Oh, what the fuck, man? <laughs> what does it take to be a man? Not by singing this shit, dude. Go lift something heavy. <laughs> Very Brian May, Queenie guitars, and a drum sound that perfectly captures a Casio keyboard from 1985. This is seriously giving me ear fatigue listening to this. The digital brittleness of the recording is off-putting, and it's starting to sound like digging your hands into vats of poker chips when he hits the cymbals. It's just like... <laughs> Next. Love on the rocks. Ain't no <laughs> big surprise. There you go. The verses are quieter, with Delp in his lower register once again singing over an electric piano, finishing up with the line, what does it take to be a man? And then the guitars kick in with a melody line that serves more or less as the chorus. And from there, we hear intermittent drums and bass, and the track has a weird structure to it. Delp sings over the second chorus part, and then it continues to rise, becoming more soaring and dramatic. But it feels odd. It feels unfinished. And the drums are really irritating me on this one. The sound is... Ah! The lyrics are Delp musing on what it means to be a man. That strength can be found through giving, empathy, and a gentle hand as opposed to a harsh one. Delp implores the male sex to get in touch with his feelings and try a little tenderness when dealing with others. Look past the hate and see beyond the life he lives. Yeah, this one's kind of a mess. It's got some good ideas, but they needed to be more fleshed out. I... Ugh. 
It's my least favorite, too. This is Aaron Stinky Stinker. <laughs> the following track is I Think I Like It, written by Tom Schultz and John English. Brad, what do you say? So this is probably my favorite song on the album. And, you know, just the the vibe of it, the drum hit goes into the riff, lead melody, chugging riff during the verse. Verse melody is good. Call and response with kind of that riffing. We've talked about Queen. I brought up Brian May a couple of times. That that sounds so much like Queen, that little uh, interlude that that they do in there. And then the chorus, I think, is great. I mean, Delp on his own, double tracked, sounds great. Harmonies come in, sound good as as well. Verse two, I'm such a sucker. You've heard on my show, Aaron, for delay, vocal delay. And that second verse, <clears throat> when he says people, and it obviously delays and repeats, it, it just gets me every time. I love it. Love the song. Lou, you love it? I, I'm tapping my foot and I'm digging the riff. And then I figure out where I know the riff from. Anyway, you want it. Oh, sure. The way you de- totally. Except it's, it's <laughs> slowed down with a dozen brads wailing at you. It, I'll take it, but it, it's nowhere near what they were capable of. Um, again, the, the production kills this. It's probably a banger if you just took the blur off and just played the thing. So, so Lou, you've ruined that song for me now. Yeah. now I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to hear it anyway. Anyway, you want to <laughs> That's the way anyway, So I actually, I've seen Boston only one time. I, have you guys, I don't know if you guys have seen them live before, but I saw them once in 2014. They did this song to kick off the encore. And like you're saying, Lou, the, yeah, the production's a little bit rough. And it, it came across great live. So it's got to, yeah. It, it, it was great. Instead, this way, it sounds like something from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, that utopia music, you know, where they're all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I picked up on the journeys any way you want it right off the bat, too, that na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na. It's the same fucking riff. And I can't get that out of my head, though, of course, they try to disguise it with those sweet Brad Delp harmonies (laughs) while the chorus changes to a choppy rhythm and, as usual, the intensity is boosted. The Boston formula is once again on display with lesser results to my ears. That said, I do dig Schultz's fluttery guitar fills throughout the track, and the solo is flashier than what we're used to. It's about as shredding as Tom Schultz gets, and I think I like it. I think I like it. Lyrically, our narrator is getting older and he's maturing. He's taking a look around and he's changing his opinions and feelings about things. He observes people being selfish and only looking out for number one. And he used to be like that, but he's changing. He's caring more about his fellow man and the world could use a little more love. This track's okay. I think I like it, but I don't love it. Sorry, Brad, Delp, and (laughs) Rustoven. The penultimate track is Can't You Say You Believe In Me slash Still In Love, 
written by Jerry Green, Tom Schultz, and Brad Delp. Brad, how about this one? So, a cappella harmonized chorus intro. Brad, I mean, Brad sounds great. You can't deny that. Piano is is pretty mellow. Verses are pretty mellow. Kicks in at the chorus, and you've got those hammer-ons in there uh, during that catchy, catchy chorus. I mean, I know this was a single. I think it charted pretty well for them. The still in love part. I, they almost list it as another song on the on the back of the CD and inside. And it's like 25 seconds in the middle <laughs> of it. So I don't, I don't really understand that part, but it's actually kind of a cool breakdown. I think, again, I think Brad sounds great uh, on that part. And uh, overall, I'm a fan of the song. Lou. Um, I can't say I believe in him. <laughs> it, it starts out like a Disney princess classic. <laughs> and, it does get a bit faster in the chorus, but Jesus, dude, can you write another riff? Can can you write a new melody? Can you write a new lead? It's the same note progression it, that it's been on all three records already. <laughs> Is this a concept album? We, we went over this. Same theme's been running through the whole thing. Is it like Overture, Sparks, Underture, listening to you, I get the music, you know, kind of thing? It's Because it's not working here. It all just sounds like the same song written to be different, and it, it's lost me. I will say that the harmonic break around halfway is something I'd include in whatever master final song this guy's got in his head that he keeps writing every fucking album. Keep this in, Tom. Keep that that section in, okay? That That's my one professional opinion for you. <laughs> <laughs> so this was recorded over 1981, 82, and 83, and apparently combines two separate songs, which accounts for the long song title. It does start with that big, can't you say you believe in me vocal with those unbelievable high harmonies. It's an earworm that will reside in your cranium. Then Schultz comes in with a grand piano like an Elton John ballad and guitars utilizing the Rockman processor that make them sound like violins. The chorus speeds up with that Delp vocal returning, followed up by a melodic guitar line that's equally memorable and makes it one of the best moments on the album for me. The Still in Love section slows everything down again and opens up the space with guitar strums and arpeggios, with seemingly random bass notes and guitar notes increasing in frequency with Delp's pleading vocals until we get to the solo section, which speeds back up and mostly follows the chorus melody and it's effective. These lyrics, though, they're cliched as fuck about a couple that's been apart and reunited and our boy really, really loves her. She's always on his mind. But Brad Delp, rest in peace, he can sell the phone book as lyrics when he sings, so I can overlook that for the most part. I've always dug this tune, and it was the fourth single that reached number 20 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. And that brings us to the final track, Holly Ann, written by Tom Schultz. 
How about this last one, Lou? It's a lot funnier if you imagine he's in love with his gardener, Javier. <laughs> You're welcome. Now you'll never be able to unhear that. <laughs> it's got all the Bostonisms, including the riff and melody of the last song. What the fuck, guys? And who the fuck is Holly Ann? What happened to Amanda? Maybe if you kept your dick in your pants, you'd developed enough angst to write a different tune. You keep rehashing the same thing over and over, pouring more effects on it to make it seem updated and new. This insults me as a listener. It's as if every song Kiss wrote had elements of tears are falling in it. And Gene just pinched his nutsack off in his cock piece doing that up leg, up leg, down Gene thing that he does. <laughs> anyway, let me get back to focus. The keyboard solo is something I appreciate, but it, it sounds thrown in like they were appeasing the guy. And I don't blame him. There are at least half a dozen other better opportunities for this guy to put in some chops instead of Tom Schultz rehashed double track major scale on every fucking tune. I'm glad this ends on something that's halfway digestible, but I'm also glad that it's ended. <laughs> Brad. Yeah. So it, interesting that they start off with Amanda and end with Holly Ann. Yeah. Yeah. Javier. What well, Javier, right? Javier. What with Amanda. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, again, I think the, the arpeggiated chords there at the beginning, you know, in the bass line and there and the verse, the melody, the in my mind, so far behind, and we could see just just his uh, just his delivery of it. I think is so good. And you mentioned that organ. Uh, the I, I called it a breakdown, but it could be a solo uh, in there. But underlying acoustic and bass is cool. And then that lyric, and I still hear guitars in the air as we sat in the sand. Awesome, great track. Well, I'm going to kind of repeat a lot of what you both said, but I do that the whole episode anyway. So you know. We bookend the album with a ballad that features a girl's name as the title. First we had Amanda, now we have Holly Ann. This comes on a lot like More Than a Feeling, with pretty acoustic guitar arpeggios and dubs singing sweetly. Then it gets even quieter in the pre-chorus with deep, melodically moving bass, and then the organ and electric guitars appear and slowly bring us up into the typically giant chorus, which sounds vaguely like Can't You Say You Believe In Me with the huge guitar melodies that sound like a host of gazillion guitars. They're rehashing shit, like you've been saying, Lou. You, it's true. You, you can't. I can't help but hear that. The solo section... The breakdown, whatever we're going to call it, features a jazzy noodling organ bit, and then we build up once again to the chorus and let those soaring guitar melodies sweep us along with Delp's angelic harmonies. The lyrics are about nostalgia through the lens of a former 60s hippie who looks back on his hippie girlfriend and the times they grew up with in fondness. They went to Woodstock together and felt a sense of community and togetherness, and he can still hear the guitars in the air. I like this. It's a decent album closer, though I do prefer Amanda to Holly Ann. She's just a cooler chick. <laughs> now that the track by track is over, we'll give our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a 0 to 5 system, with 5 being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a 0, which forgot to cool the engines and exploded. Brad, what are your final thoughts on third stage? Yeah, so again, this was really my entry point into Boston. So, you know, whether it's nostalgia from that sense or the fact that the first album is is so overplayed and, and there's so much fatigue there, I probably go to this one, like I said, probably because of because of nostalgia. And, you know, it just it just brings me back, just brings me back to 
to middle school and going into high school. So I would probably, I know I, uh, to be a man, not a huge fan. I'm not a fan of Tesla's to be a man either, but, uh, um, I'd probably give this four, 4.5 out of five. All right. Lou. I was really excited to get this. And when I saw it in the CD bin, when it came out, holy shit, a new Boston album. And I wound up selling it very soon after. I don't get what people find likable about this, that the first two records didn't blow out of the water. And there's a lot of people that like this record. I, I went to YouTube reviews and other podcasts to see what other people were saying. And the general consensus, people fucking love this thing. <laughs> so I don't, you know, what do I know? I was in, disappointed in the mix, the song choices, and basically the lack of creativity from a band that I once liked a lot. I give it a two and I'll never go back to any of these songs. And the past week has shown me I never want to. <laughs> After a successful tour in support of Boston's second album, Don't Look Back, relations between band leader Tom Schultz and Boston's manager, Paul Aham, deteriorated and led to Aham's firing and subsequent lawsuits. Schultz was unhappy with what he felt was a rush job with Don't Look Back. And though he began to develop new material in late 1979, Renovations to his home studio, combined with Schultz's perfectionism and determination to work at his own pace, led to the next album being delayed. Boston's record label CBS sued the band for breach of contract and failing to deliver the third album on time, and the first round of the lawsuits ended in Schultz's favor, resulting in his moving the band over to MCA Records. During these years, the members of Boston split off to other projects while Schultz continued to develop new material. After seven years of legal wrangling and countless hours in the studio, the third album was finally finished. The album cover was done by artist John Solozo and depicted the famous guitar-shaped Boston spaceship preparing to dock on another craft shaped like a bank of organ pipes over a blue planet. And when Third Stage was released at last in 1986... It met with mixed critical reviews, but was commercially successful, spawning the band's only number one hit and going four times platinum. As I said, this album was a pretty big deal in my high school at the time. It was like, holy shit, there's a new Boston album out. I'm from Massachusetts, so there was no way this record wasn't going to be big. To wit, the band played a sold-out 10-night stand at the Worcester Centrum in Worcester, Mass. on the third stage tour. Now, as far as the album goes, I really like a few of the tracks, but man, eight years, eight fucking years, and this is all you got, Tom Schultz? There are repeated musical themes and song intros that count as album tracks, and I can't help but think that Schultz was already running out of ideas on only his third time out. The Boston sound is still intact. You can't mistake this music for any other band. But the songwriting is glaringly lacking in places, and Side 2 in particular has a plethora of weaker moments that I don't hate, but I don't really like either. This album doesn't even live up to the standard of Don't Look Back, and it doesn't even sniff the beer farts of the debut album. That standard's high for any album to match. Now, all that said, I do like the album overall, even if it's no classic. And for me, it's the last worthwhile Boston record to explore. Everything else after this is total shit. I give Third Stage a three. And uh, don't feel bad for Tom Schultz. He may have lost the plot a little bit beginning here, but this dude can coast forever on the success and laurels of that first album. Now we'd like to thank Brad Rustoven from the Slam Fest podcast for appearing on our little show. Hope you had a good time and hope you were able to deal with the Boston Massacre. 
Yeah, no, this was great, guys. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. I had a good time. Absolutely. Please plug your podcast and anything else that you want the listeners to know about. Great. Yeah. So Slam Fest podcast, we bring the premier rock concert pregame and experience from the parking lot to the podcasting airwaves. So I am <laughs> I've tasked myself with going through my concert chronology and doing episodes on every show I've ever been to. And as I see real time shows, I'm squeezing those in as well. And then throughout the episodes, I'm kind of diving into bands on the bill you know, different things with regards to them, songs or albums and, and uh, putting albums up against each other and that type of thing. So have a good time. I, I do most of the episodes on my own, but I, I've got, you know, six or seven guys, part of the Slamfest crew that we go to concerts together with. And then I've had other podcasters on as well. So we drop Thursday uh, mornings, unless I go to a show earlier that week that I need an extra day. So it might come out on Friday from time to time, but, uh, Check us out. Yeah, I definitely endorse it. As I told you, Brad, I've listened to most of your episodes. It's You're very thorough. You cover like almost all aspects of the experience, like you said, from all the way from the parking lot to the show <laughs> itself. It's, it's yep. a really great show. So, Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast on all the podcasting platforms wherever you listen to them. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or follow the podcast and leave us a review. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com or also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. If you feel the podcast has value and would like to make a contribution to support it, please head over to Patreon and the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews page and sign up on one of the monthly tiers. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for the R4 Podcast, I'm Aaron. And I'm Lou. See ya. More than a feeling. Oh, wait. Oh, oh, fuck. Not that album. That next track is Cool the Engines, written by Tom Schultz, Fran Sheehan, <clears throat> written by Fr- <laughs> uh, written by Tom Schultz, Fran Sheehan, and Brad Delp. What the fuck did I? Oh, never mind. I got. I got. Okay. The lyrics are about the narrator finding his destination through the journey of. Oh, <clears throat> The lyrics are about the narrator finding his destination through the journey of life is... What the fuck did I write there? <laughs> Jesus Christ. What the fuck is that? I hate it when I do that. Too. Oh, man. <laughs> I go through the trouble of typing this out so I can read the shit. <laughs> you're getting old and you're going blind. Oh, man.